This is Unheard Cuts on Being. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with the journalist Hendrik Hertzberg, author Pankaj Mishra, and theologian Serene Jones. I spoke with them at a live event at St. Paul's Chapel in New York City on September 6, 2011. This interview is included in our show, Who Do We Want to Become? Remembering Forward a Decade After 9-11. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. I'm Jim Cooper, the rector of Trinity Church in St. Paul's Chapel. Welcome to our panelists, who you'll hear introduced in a moment, and to all who are uh, gathered here during this week of uh, remembering to love, looking back, and remembering to love those whose lives were lost, remembering to love those who responded so quickly and wonderfully uh, to the event, and looking forward in love with, with hope. So. Uh, God bless the, the panel and our, our work tonight, and I'll ask uh, Bob Scott, the director of Trinity Institute, to introduce the panel. Thank you, Jim. I'd like to welcome everyone here tonight. You know, it's very exciting to us that we are recording tonight's program, as this week's episode of my personal favorite uh, public radio program, On Being. So if you would begin by joining me and making sure that your cell phones are turned off, that will help us. Thanks so much. This week, the world is noting the 10th anniversary of the events of 9-11-2001. Ten years ago, this historic chapel provided hospitality and nurture and solace to rescue and recovery workers at Ground Zero. So much has changed in the last decade, but it can be difficult to take stock of what those changes are the many ways, large and small, that we're different from who we were before 9-11 entered our lives and our collective consciousness. So tonight, we're deliberately carving out time for reflection and conversation. We have a terrific leader in that in Krista Tippett, who will moderate tonight's discussion, Who Do We Want to Become? Remembering Forward a Decade After 9-11. Krista is a Peabody Award-winning journalist, New York Times bestselling author and the host of Public Radio's On Being. She's joined on the stage by Pankaj Mishra, the Reverend Dr. Serene Jones, and Hendrik Hertzberg. We are really lucky to have such a powerhouse panel together under one historic roof. I'd like to tell you a little bit about each of the panelists. Novelist and essayist Pankaj Mishra came from the UK to be with us tonight. He is a fellow of Britain's Royal Society of Literature, he contributes political and literary essays to the New York Times, the Financial Times, New York Review of Books, The Guardian, The New Yorker, and many other international periodicals. Dr. Jones is the 16th president of New York's historic Union Theological Seminary. She's a prolific and popular scholar in the fields of theology, religion, globalization, and gender and trauma studies. And Hendrik Hertzberg, is a senior editor and staff writer of The New Yorker, where he often writes the commentary for Talk of the Town. He's been an astute observer and commentator on the American political and cultural scene for more than four decades. Our intent this evening is to nurture a rich and nourishing conversation with your participation. Now, to that end, a question card and a pencil were waiting on each seat when you arrived. About half an hour into the program, Krista will remind you to write your question on that card, and then when you see the ushers circulating, pass them to the end of the aisle. They'll be collected for use later in the program. 
I want to say thanks to our panelists. Thanks to you all for being here. And here now is Krista Tippett. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Rector Jim Cooper and Vicar and Melanie and Linda Hannock. It's been really exciting uh, planning for this these months. And it's a real honor to be here um, in this place, which became not just a symbol, but really the practical heart of the ennobling human responses of care and generosity that marked those immediate post-9-11 days. Um, but it's also, and I, I became more and more aware of this today as the hour drew near, that it's a heavy, weighty honor to be in this place in this week. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, there's so much we could talk about for the next hour and a half, and on the other hand, there's so much of that that words really can't touch or address. So we're going to do our best. And I'm very pleased and comforted to be joined up here by three people who I deeply admire. Um, I agree with someone else's characterization of Hendrik Hertzberg that he is uh, one of America's most necessary voices. People sometimes joke to me that they listen to me religiously. I read Hendrik Hertzberg religiously. <laughs> um, and what I so appreciate is whatever his subject is, he brings to it uh, not just intelligence but a dignity. Um, Pankaj Mishra, in my mind, is one of the wisest thinkers and writers on any continent. Um, he is exquisitely insightful and eloquent in interpreting the rest of the world to the West and also at looking at America from the outside in. Serene Jones is bringing Union Seminary, this august American and New York institution, uh, and the important work of public theology into the 21st century. And this year she's also been working with clergy on how they are going to preach on this September 11th Sunday. So uh, the title for this evening, Remembering Forward, is a play on one of my favorite phrases from Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, where the White Queen says, it's a poor memory that only works backwards. Uh, so I'd like to think about what we're going to do tonight is not remember backwards, but remember forwards. I'd like to say a little bit about how um, I want to put some brackets around our conversation. We are not going to debate things we can't change in that spirit of remembering forward. Facts on the ground, uh, wars entered into, policies or enemies pursued. Though, of course, we may touch on these things as we reflect on what I do hope will be our focus tonight, of our common life, civil society, our public life, which is much bigger than politics, although I think we often collapse our imaginations about that phrase, to, to political life, public life. Uh, so first up here for about 45 minutes, and then with the rest of you, we're going to reflect on some of the things we're grasping now about who we are and who we want to become as we enter the second decade, the second decade of the post-9-11 world. Uh, now, um, Jim talked about love and hope, and I do expect that we will circle around at least love and hope and beauty tonight, but we're going to remain based in the complexity of reality and start there. Uh, I was not in New York on September 11, 2001. I was in Washington, 
And I felt at the time, and I still feel now, that there was a huge aspect of that experience which we Americans as a people and as a nation um, scarcely pondered together or even let ourselves take in, even knew how to take in. And that is 9-11 as an experience of mortality and frailty and vulnerability. Vulnerability in our strongest fortresses. Now this, of course, is an elemental and universal human experience, but it happened on that day with a magnitude uh, that was almost incomprehensible. But I would like to start there and Rick, um, as I looked back at a piece you wrote just in the days after 9-11, and also a year afterwards, on the first anniversary, you used this same phrase, you put two words together, grief and dread. Uh, and I thought I, that really brought home to me, um, you know, the absolute gravity of those two sensations together and, and also kind of the strangeness of, of that experience. <clears throat> well, they certainly did go together. And um, even, though the, even though these are universal experiences and the, the, the idea of vulnerability uh, is universal, we'd never really felt that here. Um, and we felt, it, we felt it very, very strongly that day and even more so in the, in the days afterward because the, the the dread took a while to settle in and the grief took a while to settle in too because because at first it was just incredulity it was it was fear it was a, it was a, it was as if uh, it was as if your senses had been altered in some odd way so the colors were different and and sounds were different and of course the the simple sound of an airplane, which was a daily, hourly sound, took on this took on this new and chilling meaning. So it changed New York certainly, because we, we never we never had this anything remotely like this before. We'd had disasters. We had plenty of disasters. We've had plenty of experiences where thousands of people died violently and unexpectedly. Not in such great numbers, but close to it. The Triangle Fire. The, um, so New York kind of joined the world and, and joined the country. Those two things happened. You know, New York... New York in, a, in an odd way, we were, we were almost not proud exactly, but um, when America was attacked, it was New York that was attacked. And, and at least for a while, it was as if New York was, and America were synonymous. Mm. That was a new feeling, too. And, and Pankaj, a lot of your thinking and writing in the last years has has been a similar, a parallel point that, in fact, um, that experience of grief and dread and calamity also acquainted Americans with an experience that many people in the world live with, even, even on a similar scale, uh, much of the time. Yes. Um, you know, I was in, I was in India when uh, um, the, this atrocity happened 
here, and uh, I was in my little village up in uh, the Himalayas, where uh, I didn't have a television, and I walked up to my landlord's uh, home, who did have one when I first heard about this, and asked him if I could open his television and see this. It was evening there, and he refused because he could not really make a connection between what I was describing to him. I was trying to stress upon him the importance of New York, of America, the significance of the Twin Towers, uh, but he could not absorb this. Uh, he was this man in a village, and terrorism or violence of that kind was too commonplace for him. Uh, too much had happened, too much violence had happened in India over the last three decades. I mean, tens of thousands of people have died in you know, terrorist attacks, in, uh, in communal riots, in you know, various insurgencies across the country. So he could not share my sense of shock, uh, so which, which, was, which was really the, the first strange experience um, I had post 9-11, in that I suddenly realized there were lots of people who saw this very differently um, and felt remote from this particular tragedy and atrocity because they had far too many of their own atrocities to deal with in their own spaces, within their own lives, and far too many 9-11s had happened to them in their own lifetimes. Um, and this is a man who lost his family you know, uh, during the partition of India, and there were so, so many other tra historical tragedies he's lived with. At the same time, you know, it was, I certainly fell, and I, I think I was uh, uh, like a lot of other people uh, who knew New York, who knew the United States, and we felt a sense of violation, which a lot of people here felt. We also felt that, that here was a country, here was a city, that miraculously had been untouched by this kind of violence. Um, and in fact, this whole idea of America that we cherished was also, you know, one has to recognize was this idea of an American innocence. We all believed in it. Um, so it was also felt that sense of violation by people elsewhere. Um, and, and, and people also felt that grief at seeing that kind of, um, that, 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 that sort of, um, atrocity being committed upon a country that had not, um, you know, confronted that kind of um, atrocity before mm. on, the home, on its you, homeland. You quoted the uh, writer Don DeLillo saying, our world, parts of our world have crumbled into theirs, which means we are living in a place of danger and rage. But the fact is, mm, our worlds were already connected, and, but this moment brought that home in a very tragic Way. I think so. I mean, I think, um, you know, we all live in this very uh, interdependent world and have been living in it for a very long time. Uh, it's just, in the fact is, some people have been more aware of it because they have been at the receiving end of history. Uh, they have been the victims for a long time. Um, so a lot of people living in what were once colonial countries, are very aware that the destinies, the fates of those countries were decided in some other part of the world. So they had to be very aware of those parts of the world all the time. And I think what happens, it's in, in that sense, the West, the modern West in the last 40, 50 years has been in a very strange position, is that because it has dominated the world for such a long time, that I think uh, that experience of vulnerability, which... Uh, has been, you know, very common experience elsewhere, 
has not been really felt as much, say, the, after the end of the Second World War, mm-hmm. after these economies were rebuilt and, you know, you had these economic miracles in these places. So it, it's been, there's been a strange disconnection between the experiences of the modern prosperous West and the rest of the world. And you see that disconnection. You see that incompatibility of historical memory, the way we remember certain events. Um, and I think 9-11 and, kind of. of course, subsequent events brought those incompatibilities to light right, in a very interleaf. harsh way. Mm-hmm. So I was remembering, Serene, um, several rabbis and preachers in those days after uh, the attacks reading the beginning of Lamentations to me, the, he- the book of Lamentations in the Hebrew Bible. It felt so present. How lonely sits the city that once was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she that was great among the nations. And our traditions are ancient repositories of dwelling with vulnerability and crisis and grief, trauma, and inviting humanity to make sense even in the midst of those experiences. Some of the writing you've been doing recently is noting that all the wounds of that day haven't been healed now, and that new wounds have been inflicted both here and abroad. And you ask this question, how then can we memorialize something that's still happening? Yes, in fact, uh, teaching at a seminary, uh, trying to prepare ministers for uh, sermons in a congregation, it's been very interesting to talk with students about what trauma does to people's psyches, what it does to communities, to open up the Bible and have the poetry of trauma right there before our eyes, and to be reminded that that level of trauma and and in a way, it's not, it's not just vulnerability. It is vulnerability in the face of overwhelming violence. That's not just a general grief or a kind of decay or undoing. It's a, a shock uh, that one's life and story falls apart. But that that has uh, long been, history is red and tooth and claw, a part of human history and the ways communities deal with that um, have varied enormously, but uh, uh, it, it, it must be engaged or it, it festers. And that's one of the challenges, I think, is how does one engage it in a way that you don't in any way glorify it, trivialize it, but also not make a spectacle of it that will in the future exacerbate its presence and that's one of the challenges that uh, we face on this 10th anniversary. I think one of the things, something that was in a way almost as shocking as the attack itself, to me, or at least surprising, was the way that the world expressed sympathy and compassion for us. I, wasn't, I wouldn't have expected that um, because for the very reasons that, that, this, that this trauma was, was so shocking to us because it was so unknown to us. And, and I'm not sure that our reaction over the... Over, I think we were made to realize, or, or perhaps I'm only just realizing it at this moment, um, 
how relatively little we have reacted to like traumas around the world with the sort of this, this seeming, this, this wonderful kind of spontaneous outpouring. I mean, despite your landlord, uh, all over the world, Iran, I mean, in, in countries where you'd never expect it, there were, the people went to the American embassies and they, and they, and they, and they, they expressed their feeling and nous sommes tous américains. And, um, and that was part of this, that was part of this ennobling moment that, that happened in the immediate wake of 9-11 and was the, was the comfort was, was, was the greatest source of comfort. I think you wrote about solidarity as a gift, as a gift of 9-11. Yes, and, that, and it was solidarity among ourselves. It was solidarity of the country. It was solidarity of people who, who, who hate New York out in the heartland, the heartland of the homeland. Um, it was, and it was solidarity of people who are totally unlike us elsewhere in the world, feeling this sense of solidarity with us. And I guess one of the, one of the reasons why it's been, such a, it's been such a dismal decade since then was the way that that, that sense, that, that feeling was squandered and, 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 and disappeared. And I, I really question how much uh, we have learned the kind of compassion that was directed toward us. I think, uh, I mean, I, I think that's a very important uh, point because, you know, living as we do in an interdependent world, I mean, this is in this extraordinary solidarity of mankind that we now see, which is, you know, and in some ways it's created, it's been created by trade, technology, capitalism. And I think one of the problems with this kind of solidarity has been that if we still believe in tribalist ways of thinking, if we still believe that our nation, whichever nation you belong to, has certain ways which are beyond criticism or they have certain authority which cannot be negated, if you believe in these ideas, then what it sets up, it's kind of constantly, in a way, violating that essential solidarity where we're all, you know, in a way, neighbors, no matter how far apart we are physically. The effect of 9-11 was felt all across the world. And, of course, what happened subsequently, you know, just showed how closely we are connected to each other. And I think that's why that moment of universal sympathy and compassion and sense of shock was so important because for the first time, you know, we had this universal moment, really, where we felt we shared this sense of horror, we felt this great sympathy and compassion. And, you know, as Rick was saying, I was thinking, why isn't something like sympathy or compassion ever a political value anymore, you know? Why can't we use those things in politics, in geopolitics, for that matter? Um, and, and, and again, I mean, we can, it's, 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 it's very heartbreaking to go back and think about that yeah. moment now and what, what, what happened back then. So, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot um, as I approach this conversation also about our domestic life and how torn, how, how div- divided it is. Um, 
And I know pe- some people are drawing a connection between the events of September 11th and these domestic political chasms, really. So, you know, we're having a very hard <clears throat> conversation right here. I, I, I do want to say, you know, if all of that, in fact, sprang from that shared moment of vulnerability and trauma, in human terms, it's also understandable that people do different things with fear and with anger. And in fact, that anger is a moral response, but then what do you do with it? Uh, so I, 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 I want to preface this difficult question I want to ask by saying I think the point of us posing this question here tonight is precisely to ask how we might circle back somehow, keep that in sight. You know, how do we live forward now? Um, but I, I do think it's a real question and a, and a, and a fascinating and difficult question. You know, what is the connection between that moment of crisis and fear and where we are now uh, with, our, with, our, with our civic life, our, our, especially our national political life, um, as divided and toxic as it's ever felt to many of us? Have you thought about this? Well, you know, it was getting pretty damn toxic before 9-11. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the context of 9-11, the kind of poli- this, this, this superficial political context of it, uh, you know, it came on the heels of, of the impeachment of Clinton and then of a wound which I think in a civic sense was a kind of, 9, was a kind of 9-11 a kind of political 9-11, and that was the judicial coup d'etat that installed Bush. Uh, Nothing against Bush personally or any of that, but installed Bush as president in a way that we we have not faced. The implications of what happened in the 2000 election uh, were, were too disturbing to look it fully in the face. And we'd come off, so we'd come off these, these uh, uh, wounds to our, to our civic health. And that was, I think, part of the reason why the, for, the, for the enormity of that, of, of the emotions that were released by 9-11, the emotions of, 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 uh, of, you know, we really are one. We really are together. This really, what unites us and what we have in common is more important than these things. It was partly because this process, which we've now, which we're now seeing enter its Baroque period, uh, where it's, where it's getting more and more depressing, um, had, was well underway when 9-11 hit. And in some ways, the history of the, the, the civic history of the country since 9-11 has been this a feeling of kind of like being, being pulled out to sea by an undertow of, uh, after this great wave of good feeling and, and togetherness. We've, we've been sliding away, uh, not steadily, because, because, because the last election was, uh, was, a, was a kind of um, echo in a sense of, of that solidarity. Uh, but precisely because of that, I guess it's a little like the insul- it's, it's a little like insulin shock after a big dose of sugar. Uh, and it, it, so those cycles, we've, we've, had, we've had four of these cycles now with the impeachment, the election, 9-11, and the and kind of post-Obama 
the, the, this, this realization, the coming down from the Obama dream. So it's not very uh, encouraging. No, I mean, we'll get to the good no, stuff no, later, good. I hope. It's, you know. it's important to, to remember the context of that and not to romanticize it. Theologically, Serena, how are you? Yeah, when I hear uh, stories about 9-11 in relation to our broader global context and a, a point both of you made very well that uh, it was a change in uh, experience of the U.S. with respect to our own invulnerability. But I think part of what it did was it cracked open the story we tell ourselves as a country about our invulnerability. But in fact, that violence and that vulnerability in its devastating form has long been there. And in a sense, I have this image in my mind of 9-11 kind of peeling back the surface of the United States itself and saying, look, all of this violence is in fact here in our midst. It's not just in India, um, but in so many ways, in so many levels of genocides, of histories of domestic violence, of the kind of incarceration, um, the, the prison system that we have, all of these levels of just devastating, bone-deep violence that is who we are as a people. And on that day, that story of a nation perfect and innocent, it, for a moment it just cracked. It crumbled and uh, opened up this wound that, uh, that we, I think, live in in a much more obvious way now. But I don't think um, in a way that close to the ground is... Um, distinct from the way we were living uh, for the past hundred years in terms of where we've been spiraling in terms of our common story. <laughs> Violence makes, uh, it, it's ugly. And it, it, the, the stories of what uh, ennobling moments follow from it are oftentimes just our own desire to cope with it, to make sense of it, to find something about it that we can sympathize and connect to, when in fact most cases when uh, a life is devastated by an act of violence, uh, you're lucky if there is finally recovery and not just ongoing um, sort of annihilation of self and hope. And but this was, this was a different kind of violence from the violence of Hiroshima or the violence of war or civil war, uh, because this was done to us, and it was, and 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 although th- there were plenty of people saying, well, you know, we kind of asked for it, and uh, and this is the chickens coming home to roost. Um, most of us, including me, didn't look at it that way. Didn't look at this as a kind of uh, deserved retribution for all the terrible things that that America has done. It was unearned. It was. It was. Uh, and and I guess people struggled to to name it, you know. And the and 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 we kind of we 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 went over into the word evil to to explain it. Um, and an awful lot of people who normally uh, don't truck with with uh, with this with the, with the notion of evil uh, accepted it for 9/11. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
But I think that in the United States there is a, a, a vast other America of people who constantly feel violence done to them and, uh, and sort of bewildered in the face of the catastrophe that keeps happening to them. So in a way it's sort of... Uh, uh, cracked open one kind of world but exposed another kind of world which is there all the time. Um. So you're not, yeah. I've, I've been interested to hear from friends who are in the field of psychology recently that there's a whole new understanding of grief. We've, we've been through this period where we identified stages of grief and this notion of closure uh, as something that you achieve at the end of it, following on what you just said. I mean, the understanding now, and I, I think also in part coming out of the experience of 9-11 and families, is that in fact grief is something that stays with you. Um, so I think then the question for us as a collectively also is if it's not closure that we're seeking, if, that, if that's an unrealistic goal, what is then the thing that we are aspiring to? that we might work towards. Yeah, grief is of all the emotions the hardest because it is never resolved if it is grief. The loss never stops being a loss. Um, but then this is where the religious traditions have, I think, much to teach us. When grief becomes mourning, that act of mourning is inevitably tied to a community's articulation of what they hope for. To be able to name what was lost and to truly... Uh, get it in your gut, uh, some sense of what wholeness would look like surrounds it. Um, and so, you know, grief is not about somehow overcoming the pain, but it is, can be a reminder of when one loses a spouse, for instance, what the love that was there that was so enlivening and, so, and giving, life giving, was about. So I think that's a very strange connection between hope and grief. Mm-hmm. But for the for the for the families of 9/11 and for and for the friends of the families and for the residents of New York, uh, in a way that their grief was made easier. I mean, the the, the universal grief that's out there and that every that, that everyone shares in their life, and that that pockets of people around the world often in much larger numbers than the 3,000 feel all the time is not it's, it's sometimes an occasion for hiding or shame um, right. it makes you, when you to be around someone who's grieving is uncomfortable you don't know quite what to say this, this, this 9-11 allowed grief to be communal and to be to be shared and to be something that you didn't have to hide or be ashamed of. So in that sense, um, in that sense, there was a kind of blessing given to the grief of 9-11 that is denied so many other kinds of, of grief. Hmm. And, you know, in some ways, I think we've overvalorized this, this grief um, because to focus it so... I think this is why, you know, the, the much ridiculed White House uh, talking points about how to, how to treat 9-11, which, which tried to stress the idea that, that we're grieving for all suffering. We're grieving for all the victims of terrorism. We're, we're 
we're grieving for all the victims of everything, rather than look at us, you know, we were hurt so badly, you must, you, you must look with admiration on our grief and our suffering. Um, yeah. This, uh, I want to, before you speak, um, I want to, uh, this is a good moment to finish writing your questions, if you have them, and I think people will be circulating, picking them up. Uh, I'm going to do my job here. Um, I'm Krista Tippett on being. Today, a public conversation at St. Paul's Chapel on the edge of Ground Zero in Lower Manhattan. I'm with The New Yorker's Hendrik Kurtzberg, journalist and novelist Pankaj Mishra, and theologian Serene Jones. No, I was just going to say that um, uh, this whole question of violence and how to develop an understanding of it within your own society, and then, of course, on a larger stage, the, the larger world, and also this question of grief. And I'm thinking of ex- societies with very long experiences of uh, uh, of violence, of consistent violence. And I, I just think there is a different uh, metaphysics there, I mean, different way of responding to this kind of random violence that, you know, basically can occur any time. And, uh, and I think in, in, in a place like India, I find there is very much, uh, there's a sense of permanent crisis, of life as permanent crisis, and you see that in the way life is lived. Um, and I think that helps a lot of people accommodate themselves to tragedy, to disaster, and indeed to grief. Um, and I think one reason why, despite the very high level of violence in that society, it doesn't fall apart in the way you would expect it to. You know, it keeps going. And, you know, it's it suffered incredible amounts of violence in, in the last uh, 50, 60 years. Uh, or, e- or even a place like, uh, place like China, which, is, which has gone through some horrific uh, kind of violence. So the, I suppose there are other kinds of spiritual resources and other kinds of um, uh, metaphysical frameworks in which you look at why does violence arise, you know, violence as a symptom of a you know, huge dysfunction in, in, in a society which cannot manage its social economic uh, clashes it cannot manage its social economic interests in a in a in a sort of peaceful manner and and so violence will keep on erupting and you'll have to just live with it you you can't you can't stop it you can't prevent it you have to manage it you have to contain it so that understanding has i suppose it's sort of implicitly there um, and i suppose helps people through you know some I, I think a, part, a piece of that that's not dramatic or loaded, but almost mundane, but which is lacking for Americans is expecting the unexpected. I mean, you know, it, we had the same rea- we had this reaction to economic downturn, that it was incomprehensible that this could happen. Um, you know, in the, in the lead-up to this, we asked uh, our listeners and, and online community this question of what we're just understanding now. And I, th- I think before we open this discussion up, I want to read something that came in from Matt Reddick from Cold Spring, New York. So he was born in 1973. I think, I'm not very good at math, but I think that means he was in his early 30s uh, on September 11, 2001. And he said, um, 
what are we just understanding now about the story of 9-11? I think it's that we are all stumbling our way through, through this life without certitude to, to this point. The moral clarity we were supposed to have gleaned that day has given way to a moral fog. It has taught me that the righteousness of the American experiment is not a given and that we must constantly re-examine and re-earn that righteousness, which is a very intriguing idea, the notion of re-earning righteousness, serene to your image of imagining what wholeness would look like. Um, and, and, buried, and buried in that comment is the assumption of righteousness. I mean, that, 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 <clears throat> that, that this is something that we have, that we used to have. That we had and have lost. That we had and have lost. Yes. Uh, but maybe we need to take it a little, a step farther than that without getting into the endless, awful, idiotic arguments about American exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Um, where do we get off trying to go back to this Edenic past where we were good and perfect and whole? Wouldn't it be better if we learned that we, that we were never there? Right. I mean, I think in terms of how we tell the story about who we are as a people, it's a version of what you were just saying. It's a very different story to tell that of America. We are those people who, in the midst of overwhelming violence and the devastations of life, have the capacity to face that in a kind of realism that gives way to cooperation, potentially, or to have a sort of illusion of righteousness, which says we are an innocent, perfect people who, when faced with some enemy, will always conquer it and end up innocent in the end. And two very different American stories. Very different. You've, you've talked about repentance as a notion that is important for you, a theological, a spiritual virtue. Just, would you say a little bit about you know, what repentance might look like beyond the political realm? We could talk about, we could talk about repentance in a, in a political sense as well, but none of us sitting mm-hmm. here tonight can actually affect that in the immediate future. So what would that look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, in and the life of a citizen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, to repent, literally, if you take the, the Greek version of it, is to be turned around. It is to reorient one's gaze, one's direction. Um, and to repent requires naming uh, what one is turning away from so that the turning happens in that sense. And we really have yet as... A, a people to honestly name the reality in which we're living right now. I think it is part of the underlying tensions that are give rise to the animosities we face in a political context because of that constant repression of even naming the chasms that are there. Um, so repentance requires first a naming and then in that hovering space around it, a willingness to look in another direction. Well, I think this would be a good moment to open the discussion up. I'm so aware of all the things we haven't touched on that one might touch on. And you can, well, I hope uh, you will all now introduce some of those subjects into our discussion. 
I don't know where to look. <laughs> we have some questions here, and uh, the ushers are still collecting them if you have more. First one is, what spiritual practices can we turn to as we move forward as individuals and as a society? Repentance. 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 <laughs> uh, yeah. I think that... Uh, one of the things that was very useful in, in my community in New Haven and was previously useful um, in terms of being prepared for 9-11, my family was injured in the Oklahoma City bombing. And so uh, there was a real sense when that happened, that uh, sort of being out of kilter with the United States. And so this, for many people in Oklahoma, was just a sort of building on what was already a collapsing story. But then the reading of the Psalms... Uh, uh, a set of poetry that's uh, very important um, in actually a number of religious traditions which take you through uh, the language of grief in, in all of its ugliness, which is part of the power of the Psalms. So. Pankaj, I'm curious how you would answer that question because you've done such interesting writing about the Buddhist thinking also in terms of social life. I think um, a suspicion, maybe this is not a very spiritual way to think about this, but uh, certainly the Buddha would prescribe a suspicion of abstractions, of intellectual concepts. You know. I think one of the uh, things that happened after, soon after 9-11 is that we were really unable to see it in the sort of right kind of context. We were so quick to, you know, pronounce uh, on the event and to build up this sort of huge ideological clash between Western liberalism versus Islamo-fascism and how, you know, the democratic West now needs to spread, you know, freedom and and democracy around the world. These kinds of... uh, uh, abstractions that that the that the that the Buddha certainly advised, that the Buddhist tradition advises against, which really have very little connection with lived reality, with ordinary lives. Um, and I think one of the things that I take from the last ten years is really a, 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 a sort of suspicion, a necessary suspicion of these ideas and these concepts. We have to constantly keep challenging, and maybe that's a form of spiritual practice. Of, of examining these, what do they actually mean? You know, uh, what, what does what does you know? As you say, if you're talking about violence in this country and a, and, a, and a particular history of violence, then what does democracy mean in a context like that? You know, um, so I think that's that's really been um, important for for uh, for me in the last last decade or so. Hmm. You want to say anything about spiritual values? <laughs> well. I think if uh, I, I think there are a lot of people who li- listening to this conversation far from this room who might say, "Well, what are they talking about? We're supposed to repent because because uh, three thousand of our fellow citizens were were murdered by by terrorists. What's for us to repent about that?" Um, so you have to take it. You have to take it. You have to kind of get. Nine Eleven is an occasion. And this anniversary is an occasion for meditation and thought. Um, but there's no simple straight line between we were hurt, 
we must repent. Um, we should, we, 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 we certainly must repent. And we, 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 we had reason to repent on September 10th, uh, 2001, and we have reason to repent now, and we had reason to repent in 1860, and we had reason to re repent in 1700. And <clears throat> to the extent that we repent, all well and good. Um, was it our fault? Was it our fault that this terrible thing happened to us? I don't know. I think one of the powerful things about the mo notion of repentance is that it does not require individual culpability. Um, in the tradition, it has more to do with what happens when you recognize the stain that violence, that brokenness leaves in every in the in the community. So it's more about how a community understands itself facing and. Uh, the reverberations of violence in our lives, quite apart from any sense of whether we earned it or caused it, are nonetheless there. They just live in us. Um, there's, a, there's a tribal reaction, too, though. The, the, what happened in Oklahoma City, that, that, that violence, which I th I'm sure for, for Oklahoma was bigger than I mean, those 300 people in the federal building in, in uh, Oklahoma City as a proportion of the population must have been greater than, than what happened here. <clears throat> but you couldn't react to that by, by saying the other did it. It wasn't us, it was the other. Right. And so perhaps uh, I think there was, I think there was, I think it was easier, it was easier to, it was easier to, to pan something positive out of of, uh, of the Oklahoma City bombing than it has been out of this, because there's that other side to to this. There's the side of of their tribe hit our tribe, and and the lesson we draw is our tribe is innocent. We have to get their tribe. And we're hardwired to have those reactions too. We are. Yeah, we are. Let's take another question. This question is about our reactions. How do we humanize our grief instead of glorifying our hurt? Instead of glorifying our what? How do we humanize our grief instead of glorifying our hurt? Hmm. Let's let that one sit and, and take another one and collect a few. What pieces of history might help us remember forward in a more balanced way? Let's take another one. <laughs> what, what, what? Yeah, a good question. Has 9-11 affected each of your own lives in a personal way, in your perspectives? I want to say when I, when I collect questions like that, I'm not dismissing them. I actually think something that would be wonderful for us to learn in this culture is to dwell with questions, to not leap to answers and debates and competing answers. So I think just letting those questions sit in the room has value. But Another? One more. Are we better equipped now, ten years later, to handle any new trauma or attack on us? 
I have a quick answer to that one. I don't think that we're ever equipped to handle trauma. I, I, that's why it's traumatic. Um, there is, there's no way you can prepare yourself, and that's part of dealing with uh, the level of violence in our world today and what it does to our psyches. Um, perhaps we are better prepared to attend to the aftermath of violence and the insidious ways it moves through our bodies and our communities. Um, um, but this question of humanizing our grief, I think, is a, is a very important one. Um, and part of humanizing grief is to refuse to make grief pretty and to make grief face into some moment of closure. Um, and as everyone has been talking these last couple of days about the most appropriate way to memorialize this event, grief, there is nothing appropriate about grief. It does not come to this moment where we do it right. Um, and I think a willingness to be in that space of, of the chaotic and the unmanageable, that is grief, is uh, part of that healing. Um, I've been reading a lot about the Civil War lately. I thought and, you might bring that up. And the, and the Civil War, um, the Civil War was a gigantic tra- trauma. And the Civil War was a gigantic moral drama. And yet, we learned the, the lessons of it very fitfully over time and with a lot of backsliding. And, and I, I think it'll be that way for... The, the set of experiences that we group under the heading of 9/11, that it's if we're lucky, if we're lucky, it's it's um, it's three steps forward, uh, two and nine tenths steps back. Uh, so we can't ex- we can't expect we can't expect a, a steady movement toward clarity, um, and we're gonna we're gonna have peaks and troughs. And uh, with any luck, each peak will be a little higher and each trough will be a little lower, but there's no guarantee of that. I've been thinking of another um, war, uh, probably fictional, um, which is described in the uh, Indian epic, the Mahabharata. And it's, it's, I mean, extraordinarily um, subtle story, but the, but the basic... Uh, sort of the, the morality tale there is essentially that you have this enormous, this great war between two sides, one of which has justice and virtue, you know, behind it. It's the wrong side, it's the side to which violence has been done. And yet as the war proceeds, this virtuous side turns into, starts to resemble the other side. And the war ends with, in this calamity, it destroys everything. It destroys families on either side, it destroys towns, it destroys villages, cities. And there are no victors in this war, there's only the survivors in this huge wasteland. And I think uh, what the epic very powerfully shows is the sort of ambiguity of, of human action and the sort of you know, complex web of motivations that. Uh, go into you know things like war and and uh, particularly pursuing justice through war uh, partic- 
pursuing pursuing justice through violence and how that can turn into very quickly into its um, opposite and you can end up resembling your your antagonists uh, more than you ever realized more than you ever mm. expected something that's disturbed me right from the outset is the language of enemies that actually crosses the liberal conservative divide no one has a that this doesn't belong to one side or the other you know the notion of hunting down terrorists which we've just become so used to that language it, it is that it is that ancient uh, danger of engaging with enemies and becoming like them let's take another question one of the audience members asks do you feel the killing of Osama bin Laden was justifiable violence anybody have the answer to that I would say yes most definitely yes uh, it's hard to if, if you know Lincoln Lincoln said um, if slavery is wrong if slavery is not wrong then nothing is wrong well if 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 the killing of Osama bin Laden uh, was was wrong then nothing is wrong or is it the other way around what am I trying to say here <laughs> you know what I, you, you, you get my drift yeah. If there's such a thing as justifiable homicide, that was it. And I, I, I suppose a lot rests on what it means to say something's justified if it is imagined in its justification as accomplishing all that it intended to accomplish in terms of uh, uh, an act of revenge that somehow manages the grief and the loss. Uh, then time and again, with, uh, in our understanding of trauma, it doesn't accomplish what it wants to. Now, that, that, I'm backing away from the question of whether or not the actual killing of Osama bin Laden was justified, but uh, it's very easy to overestimate what these acts uh, do to us psychologically. Another question? 9-11 taught us the limitations of the concept of tolerance. Have we developed a more robust way of thinking about multiculturalism? Why is it or why not? That's one worth dwelling with. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think maybe we have. I mean, um, we're, we're all in a kind of a dark mood about the present, I think. But there, but there, there is a sense in which, in which there's been progress in that department. Uh, in, in, in in sympathy for an understanding of, uh, of, of the other, of, of, uh, of, of, of trying to see it from other, other groups' point of view. I think there's actually been some movement in that direction. And I, I, I'm not sure that how much of it you can, you can attribute to 9-11 and the events around 9-11. Uh, but, but there does seem to be a long arc of of uh, away from that kind of, of uh, that kind of regarding what's human as being just my group. Um, I think there has been progress in that in that direction, despite everything, despite all the all the terror, despite profiling, and despite clash of civilizations and all that stuff. I do I do think uh, I do think that. Most of us and around the world, there's a greater sense of, of, of uh, common humanity. 
You know, it, it, it doesn't produce a whole lot of obviously wonderful results. Uh, at least it hasn't in the last couple of months. But, um, but I do think that, 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 that things are, have moved uh, unsteadily and with much retreat in that direction. Oh, no, I, I very much agree with that. I think um, also we hear now in the West voices that we hadn't heard before, that we certainly hadn't heard before 9-11, and I think of, uh, in this context, voices from the Arab world. Um, this is actually a very recent phenomenon. Um, and I think it's really important for people to hear what people have felt or thought about various issues uh, you know, affecting them, affecting the United States for a very long time. Um, so in that sense, you know, I think there has certainly been a proliferation of other discourses, other ideas, and uh, it's a much bigger you know, marketplace of ideas and uh, many more notions, many more ideas on offer there. Um, I think if, you, if you're interested, if you, if you want to hear those voices, they're now out there. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to name that and, and trace it also to this traumatic event, this 9-11 that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would say that there's no longer the possibility in the United States of getting a theological education at a Christian seminary in which there's not a multi-faith educational component, and that was not true 10 years ago. Um, we are in the process of hiring a professor of Islam and ministry at this historically Protestant mainline seminary in the city of New York. Now, what's interesting, though, in the process of, of, of the changes we see at our seminary going backwards and realizing, well, actually, the first professor of Islam at Union Theological Seminary were the dock workers uh, 175 years ago who were teaching Arabic to the students when the seminary started. So part of what happens is I think we're, we're realizing that we have long been much more multicultural as a nation than we want to admit in terms of the story we tell about who we are. And is that, is, is, is that true even among the most conservative seminaries? I mean, when you look at, when you look at uh, the kind of Jerry Falwell, Bob Jones form of... of uh, of Protestantism, do you see do you see any movement in that direction there as well? Um, yes, I actually see two kinds of movement, uh, both of which involve a greater knowledge. We'll just take one example of Islam. Um, there is, uh, I think, in um, ev- the evangelical seminaries, a real interest mm-hmm. in learning more about the Quran and in uh, finding. Uh, the possibility for common proclamations about uh, human life. You also have very conservative seminaries where you're learning about Islam in order to understand the enemy. Uh, You still have people opening the Quran and reading it, uh, which 10 years ago wouldn't even have known that the book existed. Interesting. There there is this interesting juxtaposition. I'm kind of surprised it's taken us this long to get here, of um, (laughs) a very highly publicized anti-Islamic fervor with examples you can point at. And then uh, this fact of a much greater, of a, of a, of a uh, dramatically deepened interreligious awareness and encounter and work together. I mean, Paul Rauschenbusch from the Huffington Post, who's here tonight, has written about this as his reflection on uh, the legacy of 9-11 is, you know, a- as you said, the landscape has changed, and 
the other side of the story of the Florida pastor who was going to burn the Quran was that all the clergy in his town, including the conservative evangelical clergy, uh, rallied together in opposition to that. I remember getting a letter, oh, in the early years after 9-11 from a Southern Baptist minister in the Deep South. Uh, I grew up Southern Baptist, so this meant a lot to me. And he said... um, he didn't know what he thought about Islam and, uh, you know, where he comes out theologically on who's going to heaven or not. But what he knew was that the hatred and the unkindness that was being shown towards Muslims was wrong, was not Christian. And he had uh, created a book for children to learn about Islam, for Christian children to see Muslims as people. I think that's happening um, all the time uh, in churches, in synagogues, and in mosques across the country. Uh, A mutual learning is happening. Um, What is fascinating to me in terms of understanding trauma is how much uh, unity has been found, not in some abstract discussions of the theological perspectives of um, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, but how the communities are coming together to deal with issues like drug addiction, incarceration, economic poverty, loss of home. In fact, human trauma and crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even atheists are getting some respect (laughs) once in a while. (laughs) That's right. Well, atheists are involved in these things. (laughs) (laughs) You've partially answered this, but do you want to say any more? This is a question to Dr. Jones. How do you prepare clergy to minister and lead after this experience? I think preparing clergy to minister after this experience is preparing clergy to minister um, because no one who is a minister worth her salt is going to step into the pulpit and if she's going to speak to people, uh, not be aware that there are people sitting in that before her whose lives have been ripped apart by violence. Um, that we're not talking uh, theologically in ministry to people who are nice, put-together people who pray nicely, who have very pleasant thoughts about God and Jesus and where the world's going. But you have the, the mess of humanity there and uh, a traumatized humanity. Um, so whatever skills you learn to speak to 9-11, you are learning to speak to the community, period. Um. How will children born after 9-11, quotes, remember this event? How's their understanding of God and the world changed, if at all? I, I'm curious about your, you know, we, we all, like, we have children or we know children. I don't know, what's your sense of this, about that post-9-11 generation? Well, uh, <clears throat> I'm, I guess I'm in the post-Pearl Harbor generation. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, uh, I think it's, I think it's, it's um, I don't think they're terribly touched by it if they, if, if they don't remember it. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's another in a long train of awful things that have happened in the past. And it's a little closer than, than the others. Um, but, but I don't think... Um, I don't think, I don't think they're damaged by it. It's part of what they're 
it's part of the of the atmosphere that they that they absorb and that that uh, that we've all we all absorb whenever we were born there's always there's always been a 911 somewhere there's always been something there's always been something that that um, our parents felt strongly about or or were were hurt by or were traumatized by um, no matter when we no matter how old we are or how young we are so i don't think it's in that sense i don't think there's anything special about it uh, it's part of the it's part of the um, it's part of the human story although what they're inheriting or growing up with because of 911 because of globalization because of technology mm-hmm. is a rearranged landscape of the world right um, i have to say that these the kids, the younger kids now, there's a practicality about them that I, I, I think is new in some country. That it, again, you know, it's not necessarily that they've, this has been taught to them, but they're, they're picking something up. What do you think, Pankash? I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think uh, they are probably growing up in a different world with a very different kind of engagement with... Um, this, this globalized reality, uh, which was not the case pre-9-11. And I think, you know, part of the experience is of the experience that we just spoke about of a greater sense of multiculturalism, of there being many more cultures and ways of life and, and faiths out there. Um, so I, I suspect their sense of 9-11 is going to be very different from the one held by the current generation of people who, who were you know, very aware of it when it happened and then, or, or had then to tell a story about it to their children. Um, so I, I do think we'll remember it quite differently. And as Rick says, I mean, I think, you know, think about the First World War. That was the, that was the biggest um, atrocity, really, in, in the sense that entire generations disappeared in that, uh, in, in countries like England and France, uh, you had a whole male population that was, that was destroyed. And, uh, you know, now it's remembered very differently from the one. That was the major trauma for uh, Western Europe for, you know, 30, 40 years. And then, then it was superseded by another trauma of the Second World War. Uh, so it's, it's a very generational thing, I think, um, you know, the way we talk about these things, the way we remember these things. Yeah, and it was the dark, you know, there's a kind of global trust that the whole... That the, that the way our world is now organized depends on, and and the kind of each kid's nervous system extends out so much further than than mine did when I was a kid, and you know when I when when uh, you know, read the daily news, um, they're they're connected they're connected so f- hugely all over the world, and the and and what happened on 9/11 was 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 a kind of was a dark. Uh, exploitation of that of that nervous system, that huge global circulatory system, and and I guess I I, I don't know I, 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 the there's a there's a bitterness with the sweetness of that, and nine eleven is sort of nine eleven is the purest distillation of the bitter part of it. Mm-hmm. 
It's, uh, it's very interesting. I mean, this is uh, bringing in a, a completely different experience altogether. A country like Australia, which, if you remember, post-9-11 was very solidly behind the global war on terrorism, a great stalwart ally of the Bush administration. You know, but what has happened in Australia over the last 10 years, it's being Asianized at a speed uh, that no one ever predicted. So it's a completely different country now with a large uh, Asian population and very dependent on China for its uh, trade and it's, it's selling a lot of minerals to China. So it finds itself in a completely different space. That, so that whole moment of standing with the West, uh, with the geographical West, uh, is almost, you know, it seems like a strange episode. Within just 10 years, uh, it, it feels like, a, you know, what were we doing back then, you know? You know, your, your observation about the practical um, character of it, we just this week welcomed a new class of seminary students to Union, and what's striking is that these students have no illusions that there is going to be a job waiting for them. They do not anticipate the economy improving. They think it's going to get worse. Many of them have never known reality apart from war. They are, do not envision the war's ending. I mean, they have a very dismal sense. Talk about dread of what the world holds. And yet it's this strange moment where they're incredibly optimistic and creative and enthusiastic about um, throwing themselves into it. I mean, Walker Percy once said that some of, you know, the best that we are comes out at the times that are the worst of what we face. I see that in this generation, and, and something deep is shifting. And they give me a lot of hope. Um, well. Where do the panelists look for insight and wisdom? Who do they read? Where do they turn? <laughs> <laughs> Who do you read, Hendrik Hertzberg? <laughs> oh, I read a lot of blogs. Yeah. <laughs> Don't say that. No, I, I, I've gotten a lot <clears throat> from reading Lincoln's speeches um, in, the, in the last couple of years and from, from reading Leaves of Grass. You're uh, an ancestor of Walt Whitman. Kind of. Yeah, that's, that's probably why uh, my mother's maiden name is Whitman and she's descended from one of Walt's brothers. Um, but, you know, I read a lot of journalism uh, and there's been some really, really good journalism uh, in the last 10 years that was triggered by 9-11. Really, really good journalism. Um, but I, but you'll, you'll have to ask elsewhere for what the, 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 the works of art, the, the works of art that I take comfort in are mostly older. They're mostly pre-9-11, but not pre what 9-11 did to us. Pankaj, you've done a lot of thinking and writing about how we've processed 9-11 through literature. And I feel like that's just actually becoming more and more intense right now and probably will be in the years to come. Well, I think that there's, there's been a problem with... Um, a lot of literature produced after 9-11 in the sense that, you know, we're so accustomed to thinking of literature as something about the private life, about the inner life. And it's extremely difficult for novelists to deal with such a big 
public event and trauma and disaster like this. Um, so I think people, I mean, a lot of novelists have been sort of visibly struggling to make sense of or to, to how, how does one accommodate this into this very delicate art form of the novel without, you know, violating the novel's aesthetic unities without really completely, without turning it into a kind of political tract. And that has also happened. Um, there have been some terrible books written in the, in the last decade. Um, and and I, I suspect this is a, a problem that will remain as long as people keep fixated on the event itself and don't look at the aftermath or the, the kind of you know strange period that we've all lived with um, in, 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 in almost every corner of the world, um, the various wars that have gone on and the way they've affected individual lives. Uh, you know, uh, there are so many stories that have yet to be told. Um, the other day I was in Pakistan and somebody told me about these two million refugees that had poured out of this area where the Pakistani army was conducting counter-terrorist operations in Swat. These two million people came out of there and at the end of the operation, they went back and while they were out of their homes, they, a few of them were being sheltered in United Nations, UNHCR refugee camps, but a majority of them were being sheltered, fed by ordinary people. And I sometimes think, these, why don't we hear more of these stories, not just in fiction, but also in you know, non-fiction, in journalism? We, we know of Pakistan as a failed state or as a failing state. Why don't we think about these kinds of traditions of coexistence, of cooperation that allow a society like that to absorb two million refugees on the move and mm-hmm. to you know, house them and to shelter them and send them back. So there are so many of these kinds of stories out there that uh, a fiction writer could profitably you know, use. Um, but so I, I, th- I think there's been far too much, uh, as I say, this this concentration on this one event and to see well, what meaning can we make of it. But, you know, there have been so many other things that have happened subsequently. I have to say that I limit my consumption of journalism. I'm more selective about it than I used to be because precisely for this reason. It, it's not telling us the whole story. It's telling part of the story, sometimes well, sometimes badly. Um, but we have to look in other places. I mean, I, I, I think we should mention the Arab Spring in this context. Who knows how that's going to unfold? But we were not trained by our political leaders, our pundits, or our journalists to see anything but uh, breeding grounds for terror on Arab streets. And it turns out that, that Arab streets could also be breeding grounds for dignity and democracy and the same kinds of longings. In fact, a narrative that Americans know very well. And that, that actually gives me hope. What, this realization that we are too short-sighted, that we simply don't see the whole picture at any given time. That history will surprise us has a terrifying dark side. Yeah. And it has a very hopeful side if you can lean into it. And I think it's, it's um, if, I, if I may go on, I, I think it's partly because, you know, we all as writers and journalists and novelists still belong to national societies and our first audiences are those, are those, are the people in those societies. 
And yet the reality is we live in a globalized world. We live in an interdependent world. So I think, you know, something like the Arab Spring comes as a complete shock because we're still looking at those places through the dominant assumptions of our societies. Uh, although we are very much connected to them in all, all kinds of invisible ways. And the challenge, I suppose, for all of us who write and think about this is to break out of these kinds of national prisons or the prisons that, uh, you know, intellectual prisons in a way that we uh, work in and, and have to, to a certain extent, you know, work within. Um, but it's just a question of, well, let's look at the ways in which we are connected to these people and, and do they also share the same aspirations for you know, freedom and dignity that we do. Um. Serene, who do you read? It's embarrassing, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, most often I read two people, John Calvin, um, <laughs> and I, I, I find it, him a theologically provocative, but also a, a thinker who in the middle of a of a huge global shift was trying to make sense of the world around him and the best he could do was stay awake so it's fascinating to grapple with a mind struggling to stay awake um, and then paired with Calvin I, I uh, love a Moroccan novelist and essayist Fatima Mernisi um, who's a feminist writer but also a traditionalist trying to make sense of, of uh, gender and Race in the midst of the Arab Spring and that traditional society, I find the two of them very similar in the way that they are. They wrestle with how we need order and how we need disorder at the same time, and how hard that is as uh, a professor of seminary students to to help people learn to tolerate both of those. So. I don't think it's just seminary students who have difficulty with that juxtaposition. Let's just have one more question, I think. Voltaire said that doubt is an uncomfortable state, but certainty is a ridiculous one. (laughs) How much of the toxic uncivility of our politics is a misguided search for certainty? Please speak to the theological notion of certainty and faith. Shall I speak yes, to the you notion shall. of... You're the one who's read John Calvin most recently. The- theological is yeah. your cue. Yeah. Well, faith would not be faith if it was entirely certain. I mean, the whole um, activity of, of belief is one in which one throws oneself, is grasped by something that one does not entirely comprehend. That's part of the beauty of it. Um, on the other hand, I do think that at the end of the day, there are some things that... I, as a person of faith, am certain about, and that is the fundamental equality of all humanity and the relentless love of God. And those, so I, I, I draw back from this notion that there's nothing that we can be certain about. Those certainties make a huge difference in how you engage the world. Uh, well, I have I have a I have a, a much more um, uh, earthbound uh, take on that. I mean, on on if what the questioner is asking about is is the atmosphere, the kind of civic atmosphere of the United States at the moment, 
Um, I think there's a broad. I think I, I think there's a broad crisis in our system of governance that has been there in one way or another from the beginning, and we've had a lot of uh, room. We've had a lot of margin for error over our history, and that margin of error has narrowed and narrowed and narrowed, and a lot of the nastiness and of the of the the kind of certainty that I think the questioner is is um, is disapproving of is a is is a frustration and a fear that's arising that arises from that from this larger you might say constitutional crisis that our country is going through. I think this is something that's there are signs of it in other countries, but I think it's quite severe uh, in our in ours and. Um, and we kind of take refuge in going after each other uh, to, because the, the problem is a little bit, we're not quite ready to face uh, that larger problem. And, and to the point of this evening, where does 9-11, the fallout of 9-11 factor into that? Has it do you think it, it accelerated something that might have happened anyway or in, it intensifies it? Do you think naming 9-11 and the fear of that as a factor could be part of a more redemptive civic conversation? I don't know. Well, part, part, of, the, part of the sort of sense of dread that, that lingers uh, has to do with these, with these endless wars uh, that we're in some... Uh, some uh, seemingly with some justification and others not, but we're, we, we feel ourselves, as you were saying, uh, um, Serene, in, in this, in a, in, in the, stuck in this, in this uh, pattern. Um, so it's not so much 9-11 as it is, as it is the aftermath, the hangover uh, of 9-11. Um, 9/11 is 9/11. We 9/11 is something we 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 look at as a kind of a, a, a diamond of hope. The, the the horror of that day and the solidarity of that moment, and the humanity of that moment. 9/11 um, stands as as a hope. Uh, more than as a source of despair. It's uh, a pretty remarkable statement. Surprised I made it. <laughs> yeah. hmm. And I think, I mean, I, I think that uh, hope is renewable. Uh, in, in fact, you know, it was renewed, if you remember, in 2008. There was again this universal surge of interest in. Barack Obama's election. Um, everywhere people were expecting, hoping that this will inaugurate a new era altogether. And once again, that sort of, you know, whatever suspicions, distrust, hatred had built up over the last seven, eight years, um, it was amazing how, how quickly it dissipated. And suddenly, even in, even in countries with which the United States was at war, uh, there were large numbers of people thinking, well, you know, something might change. There could be another moment, uh, just as there was a moment after, after 9-11. Uh, 
And I think despite the disappointments we've suffered since then, I mean, I, I still think the pos that possibility still exists. Uh, you would need a very, you know, far-sighted leader uh, who has really, who can see the possibility in this huge reservoir of potential goodwill that exists out there um, and, and act on the basis of that and, and not, you know, let oneself be sort of led along by these huge machines, these systems in place. And I think, you know, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, but nevertheless, that, that, that possibility is always there. And we've seen it realized twice in the last decade. Well, I expected this conversation to surprise me, and it has. Um, again, there's a lot we haven't touched on, but I, I think I live here with a, an expansive sense of time of even maybe the presumptuousness 10 years later of making sense of something, and there, there's something hopeful and uh, comforting in that. Um, I, you know, I think... I think to finish, I wonder, rather than asking for closing remarks, I, I'd love to ask each of you to uh, pose a closing question that, that we all just take with us. A, a closing question in the context of this question, who are we now, who do we want to become after this shared experience? <laughs> Did I stump three me. of the most brilliant people I know? <laughs> All right, here's a question. All right. In, in moving forward, how do we attend to the power that what we know but don't know we know has in our lives, the, the world of our unconscious lives and bodies? How do we engage that dimension of this hoping and dreading? And behind that question is there the idea that we knew a lot on September 10th, 2001, that we didn't know we knew? Or, or just that we maybe haven't lived into the knowledge we have I, after I think, this experience? I think 9-11 uh, lives in our bodies, and it lives in our collective unconscious in ways that reverberates constantly and gives shape to things relentlessly and yet it's the most difficult part of it to get at so when we talk about the ideas we talk about the politics that uh, quaking space underneath it all is, is very hard to engage and yet that's where life happens that's a real question I don't know how, to, how, how one digs into that earth <clears throat> Can we, can we fight through the miasma and find our way to some kind of light? That's the question I ask, and I'm not expecting an answer, at least not today. Fight through the miasma and find some kind of light. Likewise, I mean, I think, you know, breaking this uh, extremely, increasingly irrational momentum, you know, uh, we kind of all sleepwalking, we're just going along. Um, and again, I mean, the question uh, raised earlier in this conversation about 
how do we convert just these very simple and widely shared values of sympathy and compassion into political action, maybe even geopolitical action, you know? I do think this is an important uh, question to ask ourselves, um, moving away from the kind of conventional, traditional notions of statecraft, real politic, um, to think at the reality of this globalized world. I mean, how do we how do we make something positive out of this? Otherwise, you just have, you know, people who are neighbors and are constantly exasperated, irritated, angry with each other all the time. And yet, as we've seen, there are moments when they feel this common humanity. And how can we how can we turn this into something mm-hmm. something lasting, something realize it in political institutions of some kind? Mm. And that brings me uh, back to a question that Dorothy Day asked. I think she was maybe four, six, eight when the San Francisco earthquake happened. And she saw something very similar to what people saw in this city on September 11th, this outpouring of care. And she asked, why can't people live this way all the time? And in a sense, I mean, she had a very real, flawed, messy human life. But in a sense, also throughout that life, she lived her way into that question. Well, uh, thank you so much, Pankaj Mishra, Serene Jones, Hendrik Hertzberg, and thanks to everyone for coming here tonight. I just I owe you one more thing, which is to let you know where you can hear this program. The magic words are onbeing.org, where you can see the video, you can hear the uncut audio. But uh, in this area, on WNYC AM, Saturday at 3 p.m., this program will air. Also on WNYC FM, Sunday at 7 a.m. and 10 p.m. You can hear On Being every week, but you'll hear this program this week. And now I'd like to invite our rector to close. We want to thank the panel. You have engaged us. Uh, We'll have questions and perhaps some action, hopefully, that we'll take back into our uh, areas and arenas of influence, whether it be in in politics, governance, uh, business, finance, education, uh, religious institutions, community, uh, family. This is an important topic to us because it's so visceral for us and touches so many other parts of our our lives. so we will, we will, in fact, take what you have engaged us in and, and put it into action. And may God's grace be with us all this night and always. God bless.